Support for this podcast comes from our friends at 70 Million, a Peabody-nominated podcast about criminal justice and jail reform from Lantigua Williams & Co. Each week, a team of reporters around the country chronicles how communities are enacting criminal justice reform in their neighborhoods, from the bail system and racialized policing to the school-to-prison pipeline and the spread of COVID in jails. This show gets right to the heart of the social upheaval we're experiencing and how communities all over the U.S. are taking action. Listen now at 70millionpod.com or search for 70 Million in your podcast app. This week on Making Contact, we'll explore felony disenfranchisement and the political battle to restore the voting rights of 6 million people not able to vote because of laws that restrict people convicted of felonies from voting. We'll meet criminal justice activists in California pushing to restore the rights of 50,000 individuals on parole through the advocacy of a ballot measure in November's election. We will also turn our attention to the Native vote. In 2019 and early 2020, Native Americans testified at congressional field hearings about the ways in which their votes were being suppressed. I think democracy is stronger when it's fair and inclusive. And when you continue to strip things from us, we don't feel included. So uh, at some point, people got to see that the system set for us to fail. And it needs to change for us to not fail, but to reintegrate and um, in a healthy way. And part of that is us voting. That's Richard Morales. After being released from prison in 2019, he was surprised to learn that he couldn't vote in California. My first month of being out, I needed assistance. So I went to the county for general assistance, and um, they provided a, you know, a maybe 250 to $300 a month in assistance, and they gave me a packet that I needed to fill out. It was mandatory to fill out with all the details. In that packet is the whole voter registration uh, packet. And so I spent two hours, and I was pretty excited because I have never voted my whole life. And so I filled out the whole packet, And then I went and asked the the director of the transitional house, hey, you know, how could I get this turned in? I'm pretty excited about voting. And he said, no, you can't vote. I said, why not? And he said, because you're on parole. At the age of 20, a court sentenced Richard to life on his first felony case. In the two decades of his incarceration, Richard became a model prisoner. He got sober and earned his college degree. Richard, now 42, works with a nonprofit restorative justice program that helps formerly incarcerated individuals adjust to the challenges of life after prison. I'm on a team on the crop organization of five formerly incarcerated directors. And we're all formerly incarcerated lifers. We all served a total of 112 years. Two guys on our teams have master's degrees. One has a double master's. We all care about education. We care about giving back. We're going to be in the business of reentry and workforce development. And I know hundreds of guys who are coming out here with their education. They're coming out here to work. They're coming out here to make a difference in society, to use their time and their talents to make a difference in this world. They're not coming out like the movies portray to sell dope and gangbang. And, and you know, that, that, that era is gone. I'm sure there's those revolving door kind of guys, but... All I know was the guys coming out here who want to make a difference. Richard is part of a national movement that's advocating for the political rights of formerly incarcerated people by encouraging them to vote if they are eligible 
and working to restore their rights if they are not. I said, well, if I can't vote, I want to sign up to be one of the people that, uh, you know, stands outside Walmart or wherever to, and encourages others to vote. And so, I, you know, I want to be a part of the community. I want to be a part of the solution. In California, it's estimated that almost 50,000 individuals currently on parole can't vote because of a felony conviction. Ballot measure Proposition 17 in November would automatically restore voting rights after a prison sentence has been completed. You know, it has a ripple effect. A lot of people think of, you know, 50,000 people, 100,000 people, that may not matter. But when you look at the implications and the, and the ramifications of what can happen uh, when people actually go to the polls and vote. Ken Oliver, the policy manager for legal services for prisoners with children based in San Francisco, California. It could change the whole uh, trajectory of a state, of a county, uh, of the funds that come into a county, of the resources uh, that come into the county, of a sheriff that's elected, a district attorney. It's, it's very important. Proponents of Prop 17, like Ken Oliver, believe the move to restore voting rights to people on parole would repair long-standing inequities and provide parolees with an opportunity to contribute to their community. California and, and America in general, the West in general, has this history of, of us versus them and, and, and making uh, people who have been sent to prison or committed a crime part of what I call a throwaway population. Uh, they've made people expendable because what happens is, is that whether a person has done a minimal crime like stealing a car or done something that people consider to be, you know, more serious and violent, uh, an assault or even a murder in some cases, uh, what follows once people serve their time and, and give back to the state what the state says that they've taken, there's a civil death. And that civil death means that when people get out, they don't have a right to housing. They don't have a right to employment uh, because of their felony record. They don't have a right to vote. They don't have a right to participate in society. At Legal Services for Prisons with Children, we champion policy and, and legal measures and organizing measures to uh, change the narrative uh, for people that have been to prison. And we teach people to speak up for their own voices and to, to give positive demonstrations that contribute to the community. Uh, we do community givebacks. We, we serve the community. Uh, we train people for jobs. We put people in positions to get housing and really talk to people on a regular basis about redemption, about the human quality of human capital and human beings and, and the ideology of transformation. The current California voting rights law is more restrictive than that of 19 other states, plus the District of Columbia. There are 17 states that automatically restore voting rights after a person's release from prison. There are two states, plus D.C., that have no felony disenfranchisement at all. According to the Sentencing Project, an estimated 2.5% of Americans, or a little under 6 million voters, are disenfranchised due to past felony convictions. African Americans and Latinos are among the groups most impacted by these laws. Unfortunately, California has a long history with felony disenfranchisement, and restrictions on voting for people with convictions was actually included in the state's first constitution in the 1800s. Brittany Stonecipher is a voting rights attorney with the ACLU of California. It was part of a wave of um, Jim Crow segregation that passed after the Civil War, and it continues to be in the state constitution. Um, and unfortunately, it continues to have the disproportionate 
disproportionate impact of locking people of color um, out of the voting booth because it's discriminant um, over policing of communities of color and racial inequalities in the criminal legal system. According to the Public Policy Institute of California, at the end of 2016, African Americans made up 26% of parolees, but only 6% of California's adult population. Whites also make up 26% of the parolee population, but comprise a much larger share at 41% of the total adult population. Latinos account for 40% of parolees and 35% of California's adult population. On average, black American adults are more than four times as likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population. Not being able to vote, it takes you out of that process so you don't even feel like you're part of your community. You don't feel like you're a a, a whole citizen because you have no say-so in anything that's going on. James Willock, now 47, was released in 2020 after serving 28 years. As a condition of his parole, he is not eligible to vote till 2027. You know, it's, first of all, it's hard to find a job based on some of the laws and policies that are in place um, as far as who can hire felons, why they don't have to hire felons, whatever. And then you want to, once you do get a job, though, you you pay your taxes, you're an you're, you're upstanding citizen, and yet you have no say-so in anything that's going on. And that's even like on a local level as far as school zones or, you know, um, lunch programs or community centers. Where's this money, tax money being used for? I'm in a neighborhood that I live around. I know what's needed in this neighborhood. First of all, I've been a criminal, so I know the criminal elements, what's going on in here. So who better to have some say-so than someone who's lived that life and now is living another life? James isn't alone in his frustration with being denied his civic rights. Tariq Palmer says being released from prison without the right to vote makes him feel powerless. I feel like my purpose in life is to contribute to the awakening and consciousness of our people. And one of those ways is to be able to vote, is to be able to elect people who would change how prison functions, how parole functions, how police function, and not being able to express my voice in that this election when it is Black Lives Matters, when it's the the George Floyd death to Oscar Grant death, where it is more important to be a black man in this society and I am unable to participate makes me feel less than a man. But I know that I'm more than that. So I keep pushing because everyone should have the right to vote. For many returning citizens, felony disenfranchisement is viewed as a form of extended punishment, a way to diminish their sense of belonging. Richard Morales. You know, I read this book called The New Jim Crow, and there's just new ways of marginalizing black and brown people. Because if you, if, you, if you ask them, all they can say is, well, you need to continue to be punished. And um, your punishment isn't over when you get out of prison. And I think it's just another way for us to to set things up for us to fail. Instead of further punishment upon release, voting rights advocates like Brittany Stonecipher suggest that increased civic participation reduces the chances of someone returning to prison. 
the states that do allow people to vote upon their release from prison have lower rates of recidivism. There have been a number of studies that have looked at the connection between how restrictive a state's laws are around um, voting rights for people with convictions and how frequently people return to prison and how successful they are at reentry. And it makes sense because when people feel connected to their communities, when they feel like they're their voices are valued, they are more successful at re-entering their community and making those connections again. Prop 17, largely supported by prison reform advocates, offers a fresh new way to engage returning citizens and address the systemic racism and socioeconomic bias in our criminal justice system. I think that people are becoming more aware of this issue and how it continues to create further suppression that continues to lock Um, people of color out of the ballot box in California and nationwide. Um, Again, I think the Black Lives Matter protests have really made our focus um, stronger on that. And in the the course of the legislative battle to pass ACA 6 um, through the legislature and get it on the ballot just over the last year and a half, three states have reformed their felony disenfranchisement rules and eliminated forms of restrictions that they had previously. So, There is momentum going um, across the nation to get rid of this archaic form of Jim Crow voter suppression. As states across the nation grapple with the issue of voting rights for people still incarcerated and on parole, Californians will cast their votes for Proposition 17 this election. If it succeeds, 50,000 people on parole will be eligible to vote. But if it fails... Voting rights advocates have pledged to continue the legal fight to eliminate felony disenfranchisement. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson in Oakland, California. You're listening to Unblock the Vote 2020, an examination of voter suppression and its impact on historically marginalized populations This episode is part of our ongoing series on voting rights in the run-up to the 2020 election. To stay up to date on past and present shows, check out our website, radioproject.org. And now back to Unblock the Vote 2020. This act flows from a clear and simple wrong. Its only purpose is to right that wrong. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. This law will ensure them the right to vote. Fifty-five years ago, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law the Voting Rights Act of 1965, The Civil Rights-era legislation was designed to protect access to the polls. But in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the law. If a jurisdiction with a history of voter discrimination wanted to make changes to voting or elections, they had to prove that the changes would not have a discriminatory effect on any group. Congressmember Marcia Fudge. In 2013, the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County gave jurisdictions with a provable legacy of discrimination a green light to discriminate at will. What was old is new again, 
polling place closures and movements, cutbacks and restrictions on early voting, discriminatory voter ID laws, removing otherwise eligible voters from the rolls, modern-day poll taxes, and a failure to provide required language assistance and materials, among other barriers, all combine to continually disenfranchise millions of otherwise eligible voters. Congressmember Fudge chairs the House Subcommittee on Elections, which held field hearings on voting rights and election administration across the country. Three of those hearings covered Native American voting rights and barriers to the ballot, Making Contact producer Monica Lopez has more. Organizers are focusing on key states where Native Americans could tip the scales toward issues and candidates they favor. These states are Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, North Carolina, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. But while many are working to get out the vote in Indian country, others have been doing what they can to suppress those votes. And what are some of the biggest barriers to the polls for Native Americans this November? I think the biggest challenge that we face in the 2020 elections is COVID. Judith LeBlanc is a citizen of the Caddo Nation of Oklahoma who resides in New York City. She's the director of the Native Organizers Alliance, a grassroots training and organizing network that works with tribes, tribal entities, and Native American community groups. We just found out today that in one of our sites, on one reservation, one of our canvassers has caught COVID. We are are trying to ensure that all of the voter engagement, the voter registration, uh, getting people to the polls is done with with PPE and with every protection possible. Um, So I think that's the biggest obstacle. The second, you know, is distance. You know, it's distance. When you look at COVID, there's so many places in Indian country where you're over a couple of hours away from an emergency room. But when it comes to democracy, that is just coming to light. And I guess we can thank COVID for this because now people are beginning to understand that in order to vote, having to drive hundreds of miles is depression of the vote. To be sure, COVID and long distances from voting locations pose significant challenges, particularly for voters living on reservations. The U.S. Congress also chose to investigate voting barriers and the impact of the Supreme Court's changes to preclearance in the Voting Rights Act. The Committee on House Administration's Subcommittee on Elections held field hearings beginning in 2019. Six of those were in states with jurisdictions that had been covered by preclearance provisions. The other two were in states where voting barriers had been reported after the Supreme Court decision. One of those two states is North Dakota. My name is Charles Walker, and I serve as chairman of the Judicial Committee of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, a federally recognized tribe located in both North and South Dakota. We have approximately 15,975 members, 8,637 of whom live on a reservation. North Dakota has had voter ID laws in place since 2004, but for years the law still permitted individuals to vote if the poll worker could vouch for the identity of a qualified voter or the voter signed an affidavit swearing under penalty or perjury that he or she was qualified to vote. Um, These exceptions were especially useful on the Standing Rock Reservation where tribal members serve as poll workers and can vouch for almost every person within the community. Uh, This all changed in 2013. Democrat Heidi Heidkamp won a Senate seat in 2012 by less than 3,000 votes, or roughly 1% of the state population. Uh, We believe Standing Rock votes had a large impact on that election, with Native American votes putting her over the top. In response, 
in 2013, the legislature immediately imposed an ID requirement that required a residential address. My name is Roger Whitehall. I work for Chairman Mark Fox as the Chief Executive Officer of the Mandan Hiraz on Urquhart Nation. Our Fort Berthold Indian Reservation is in western North Dakota along the Missouri River. As you know, in 2017, North Dakota passed a law that was designed to reduce the tribal vote. The state law requires IDs to have the current residential street address. This goes beyond the typical voter registration requirements. Our rural reservations and housing systems were not set up that way. Many of our members use a P.O. box for their addresses. We recently began developing community streets and housings with residential addresses, but our reservation is mostly rural. The state knew, knew this, and they used it to suppress tribal voters. The MHA Nation has more than 16,000 members. Almost 6,000 of our members are voting age and live on or near the reservation. Remember, elections in North Dakota get decided by a few thousand votes. The MHA Nation had to step in to take action to make sure that tribal members' votes would be counted. As fast as we could begin issuing new tribal IDs and create street addresses for our members and their homes. Our enrollment office had limited staff and resources to do this work. In about a month and a half, they issued 456 new IDs with new addresses. We did not get any support, any support from the state of North Dakota or federal trustee. Even with all this work, about one-third of our members still do not have tribal IDs. In addition, many of our addresses we use to make these IDs may not be accurate for the next election. Many tribal members listed a family home or a home where they're currently staying. This is not voter fraud. This is a result of an unworkable state law being applied to our reservation. Congressional Representative Benny Thompson. Just for the record, in Mississippi, my state, you can register to vote with a post office box. Uh, you don't need a physical address as of this day. I'm registered like everybody else in my little community of 500 people. So you get your mail at a post office box. You get your jury summons at a post office box. The other thing is uh, to each of the witnesses, by requiring a physical address for registration, is it your testimony that that caused an, a financial burden on individuals? And I'll start with uh, Mr. Walker and we'll go. Had the, the Standard Rock Sioux Tribe not waived the $5 fee for the tribal IDs, you take a look in the testimony, 807 were issued. That in itself is substantial to take a look at, <clears throat> not only supplies, the time, um, and also the effort from our, our partners and allies I commute um, 26 miles one day every day just to come here and conduct business. And if you're in a financial um, hardship, that's $40 guaranteed that's going to have to come out of pocket. And if you're living on a fixed income, that's bread and milk for a week. You know, are you going to eat or are you going to vote? So, um, yes, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe did waive some of that. And ultimately, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is who had to take care of that cost. And I'll say this for the record too, is that the reason we have done that is because as um, elected officials here in this body, we also took an oath to the Constitution of the United States. And those uh, guaranteed so-called rights, we have to uphold those also. Congress member and chair of the Subcommittee on Elections, Marsha Fudge. I think that all of the uh, tribes that had to 
go and and create these IDs at the last minute at such great expense should send the federal government a a <laughs> bill. Uh, maybe under HAVA we could pay you for all of the work because what we really have done is create a poll tax by requiring that people go out and buy an ID that they don't need for any other reason but to vote. They don't need it to drive because they don't drive. They don't need it for any other reason. So, in fact, the state has created a poll tax on your reservations and all of the people who live in them. Native Americans were granted their right to citizenship in 1924. That's over 50 years after the passage of the 14th Amendment. And in 1962, the right to vote was fully and finally guaranteed for Native Americans in all 50 states. Speaking at a Native American voting rights hearing in Washington, D.C., New Mexico Congressional Representative Ben Ray Lujan. The good news is that tribes and lawmakers are taking action. That's why I introduced the Native American Voting Rights Act with Senator Tom Udall, our colleagues Deb Holland um, and Shree Stavids, and ranking member Tom Cole. The Native American Voting Rights Act allows tribal governments to collaborate with their state counterparts to ensure Native peoples have access to the ballot box. It directs states to accept tribal IDs for voter registration or identification purposes, requires precincts to honor requests to place polling locations on tribal lands and ensure precincts seek tribal consent before changing polling locations. In places that require native language assistance under the Voting Rights Act, it allows tribes to determine the forms of assistance. Tribal governments are empowered to request federal observers when they believe native voters might be disenfranchised at the polls. Jacqueline DeLeon is a member of Isleta Pueblo and is a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund, or NARF. In 2015, NARF began the Native American Voting Rights Coalition focused on increasing Native American access to the political process. Over two years, the NAVRC completed a series of nine field hearings on the state of voting rights in Indian country. 125 witnesses shared their experiences voting. I'm carrying their stories with me here today. Unfortunately, I come with dire news. Native Americans have to travel, frankly, absurd distances to register. Voters from Nevada tribes identified travel distance as the single biggest obstacle to registering. The closest elections office to the Duckwater Reservation is 140 miles each way. Pyramid Lake faces a 100-mile round trip, and the Walker River Reservation faces 70 miles. If states are required to give registrations with SNAP applications, the Department of Agriculture should likewise be required to give out and collect registration forms for their commodity program. Additionally, polling places are usually located in non-native communities. In Bighorn County, Montana native voters must travel twice as far to reach their polling locations as non-natives. This is but one example of many. Long distances are costly because they take time to travel, require missed work, childcare, a vehicle, and gas money. What's more, this travel is on dirt roads which may be impassable in the winter month of November. But even more damaging is the message that remote polling places convey to voting tribal members. These distances communicate your vote doesn't matter. The system's not for you. Mandating polling places on tribal lands, as NAVRA does, will dramatically decrease travel time for thousands of Native Americans across the country. Finally, discrimination is not just a relic of the past or the effect of past wrongs. In Arizona, racial tensions are so high between the Kaibab Band of Paiute Indians and the border town next to the reservation that border town residents regularly block the flow of water into the reservation. And for years, tribal members were forced to vote in that same border town. In South Dakota, voters were forced to vote in a repurposed chicken coop. 
In Montana, the number of registration cards accepted by county officials from Native community organizations was arbitrarily limited to 70, creating an unnecessary barrier to registration. In South Dakota, the Buffalo County seat located in Gann Valley has full or early voting access. Gann Valley only has a population of 12 people. And yet 25 miles away on the Crow Creek Reservation, Fort Thompson's 1,200 residents had no early voting. Despite calls from activists to provide a polling location in Fort Thompson, and despite HAVA funding being available, the county auditor refused and instead decided to forego the usage of the funds altogether. In sum, as one tribal member explained, yes, I would like you, person at the poll, to respect me as a Native American, respect my culture. But if you can't do that, treat me as a human being and respect my elders and respect my children. Likewise, we ask for no more and no less than equal opportunity for all Native Americans to vote. We just heard excerpts of congressional field hearings on Native American voting rights and comments from Jacqueline DeLeon, Judith LeBlanc, Charles Walker, Roger White Owl, Congress members Ben Ray Lujan, Benny Thompson, and Chair of the House Subcommittee on Elections, Marsha Fudge. For Making Contact, I'm Monica Lopez. You've been listening to Unblock the Vote 2020 on Making Contact. Thank you to the Omnia Foundation and the Park Foundation for support of our work. You can find a full list of credits and info on Free the Vote on our website. That's at radioproject.org. And we'd love to hear from you. What other topics do you think we should cover? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. And do me a favor, check out our Instagram at Making Contact Radio Project. Like a post or leave us a comment. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening.